This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial when you sign up today at audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 9th, 2015, Le Je Suis Charlie Hebdo Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in D.C. On today's show, the terrorist attack on Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical newspaper, what it means for France for free speech and how to deal with Islamism in pluralistic societies. Then the Republican Congress begins. Will it get anything done? Let's have a bill count. How many laws will there be that will be passed? And then the NYPD stops arresting people as a form of a work stoppage to protest the murder of two police officers and to protest their mayor, Bill de Blasio. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we are going to Emily, – Emily changed us up. We're going to talk about the new year and New Year's resolutions and the new world of 2015. Emily Bazelon – is in New Haven. Hello, Emily of the New York Times Magazine. Hey, David and John. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You look very Nordic, Emily. Or I as do, Nordic, it's as, Nordic as a, as a uh, Eastern European Jew can look. <laughs> Emily <laughs> is wearing, we should uh, note for our listeners who can't see Emily at the moment, that she's wearing uh, some kind of cable knit situation. White cable knit. <laughs> a large turtleneck sweater. She's just come off the store. But it's not, cab- it's not actually you, cable knit. So it's not no. like some, it's not from the air and aisles or anything. I feel like you did just come off the slopes. Yeah. Ooh, it's oh, it's a little thin. It's a little. Uh, oh, well, no wonder you're poly. so cold. It's. it's. No, it, I have long underwear underneath. Oh, well. It's like TMI. TMI. All right. Okay. That's John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. Hello, John. He's in Tweed. Well, yeah, I'm in, I'm in good old fashioned Tweed. We haven't done a show in. I know. Forever. I, we, maybe was, we forget how. Yeah, there's we, just one listener out there who's like, it's like after the World War II, the Japanese who were living in the caves didn't know the war was over. One listener doesn't know the show has actually ended. Wow. The horrifying attack on the Charlie Hebdo satirical newspaper has caused fury and sorrow throughout France and the world. The murder of 12 people, most of them journalists, many of them the satirical cartoonists 
who were considered blasphemers by the the despicable dirtbags who killed them, has opened a wound in French society. The attackers, who are at large as we tape, appear to have been Islamist terrorists associated in some way with Al-Qaeda to have had some kind of training, but they're also native Frenchmen. The uh, anti-Muslim nationalistic French right, led by Marie Le Pen, is already depicting this as part of a greater conflict between France and Islam. Uh, and Islam and Muslim citizens and Muslim immigrants. Journalists, meanwhile, both in France and elsewhere, are worried about the chilling effect this kind of killing could have on journalism and on satire. I feel like, maybe you guys don't feel this way, that this is a huge moment. It's almost the biggest moment relating to terror since 9-11. It feels that way to me, and I don't, I can't, I want Emily now to articulate why it feels so significant. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just me. No, I had the same reaction. I wonder if it's because we're journalists or I, if it's be- – do you think that's part no, of it? I don't, well, no, go into it. I don't, I don't think it's quite that self-centered, but continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you before you even no, finished okay. the phrase. No, it's okay. I was so um, distressed about this. I kept reading and viewing and part of it I think is the – images right away of the cartoonists who died. They were like old French guys. They looked so friendly and they so clearly were engaged in a kind of mockery and satire that I think most of us embrace. And also, honestly, like I literally cannot imagine killing someone over a drawing, even though I know that's like a dumb thing to say, because obviously this is a source of real friction in the world. It seemed so inconceivable, such a sad clash of values that I just felt really affected by it. But why does it feel like it's big? Does it feel big to you, John? Well, yes and no. I think the... So in Spain in 2004, an Al-Qaeda cell killed 191 people. We had the London bombings. We had the Mumbai bombings. There have been more people killed. And what's strike, what's interesting here, I, I see what you're saying, and it feels like this is different. For me, the first thing that occurred to me was what's different is that this is like the attack in Canada. We've now had the Australian. The biggest worry of the people in the administration trying to fight ISIS and the new formation of whatever the international Islamic extremist threat is, is that for a long time after 9-11, and Tim Noah wrote a a long series in Slate about this, everybody wondered why hadn't it happened again? Or why hadn't it happened in smaller ways all over the place in such a porous country as America? And there were lots of theories going around, one being that al-Qaeda only liked to do big things and didn't want to do just little things. What worries the people trying to fight this now is that something has changed, and now all kinds of little attacks, like this is going to be the norm. And so outside of uh, the specifics of the case, it seemed to me yet another example of we're going to get one of these regularly. Now, that, that doesn't really go at all to your question, but what does, I think, maybe scratch a little bit at what you're talking about is the idea that this was a retaliation. In some ways, it's interesting. It's 191 people's obviously more human lives taken. And the fact that they are just innocent and not involved in the conversation at all and just random seems more horrible. More doesn't seem the right word. But you know what I'm saying? Like, this is of a different order. And therefore, since it's of a different order than a fewer number of people, the body count doesn't matter. And I don't know why, obviously, as you can hear me stumbling to try and figure this out. But I think that has something to do with it. Well... Here, so the the attack, which is is obviously closest to 
for a number of reasons, is the Boston bombing in the sense that it is. I mean, first of all, it's a pair of brothers. I mean, I know. Isn't that so upsetting again? Well, it's a, and it's a pair of brothers who, who you know, again, appear to have been radicalized within the bosom of a society which was both at once theirs and not theirs. The Sarnayevs were immigrants. I think these guys are not immigrants to France if they're, in fact, the attackers. And that it was an attack which was explicitly made to get at the core of the society that they were part of. So the Boston, right. Bo- the Boston, you attack the Boston Marathon. It's this collective sense of uh, American identity or Boston identity. Cultural symbol. It's a cultural right. symbol. The psychic it, count is bigger than the body right, count. Right. And so there's a kind of particularity which seems so deadly and a, t- a strategy, almost like a strategy that this is war. Like terror attacks where you blow up indiscriminately, blow up civilians are horrible, but they are in some sense random. The this. What, what am I getting I know, at? This we're kind fumbling, of specificity yeah. of it is somehow feels to me more alarming. Like there, there's, a, there's a clear war plan that is associated with this, even though there probably isn't, even though this is probably just some, you know, just two guys who spent a bunch of time playing too many video games and came up with a strategy. But I, I'm, I think I'm that's fumbling. right. It feels more sinister and diabolical for those reasons. And I also wonder if there's a way in which it taps into liberal fears of overreaction in a similar way that the society is going to feel so threatened and wanting to expel this threat that it's going to go too far. Because what this attack against Charlie Hebdo seems to be about is this like very strong strain of French French secularity, right? There's like, I think the word might be, well, I'm not even going to try because I'll get it wrong. But anyway, it's this idea that is, I think, foreign to Americans that this is part of why France told school children that they can't wear the veil in school, that they've actually banned covering your entire face in public, this way in which the French are ill at ease with this growing Muslim minority of theirs. And then we're going to have the party of Marie Le Pen seizing on this as an excuse for discrimination. Well, how does French society prevent a wave of anti-Muslim populism from seizing it? How does it how does it not turn this into a terrible divisive moment instead you know, make something unifying out of it? Is it possible? I mean, there's obviously such a terrible history in Europe in the 20th century with with these kinds of ideologies, with these kinds of nationalist, you know, uh, racist nationalist ideologies. I mean, Nazism being the worst, but by no means the only one. This is a strain that was ran throughout Europe in different places in different ways. How can you have a pluralistic society with strong minority populations, but yet they're distinct elements within minority populations who are bent, hell-bent on destroying those pluralistic societies. Yeah. I mean, it's the dilemma <laughs> of our know. age, right? I guess I'm not sure we in the United States have a whole lot of useful advice to offer since we failed this test in many ways after 9-11. No, I we was didn't. Heartened we by... didn't. Hell no, we didn't fail it. How did we fail it? Well, there was a lot of, you know, rounding up of Muslims, detaining people as material witnesses. There was, there was a lot not of a post lot of 9/11. That. There was not no our tr- racial we, profiling. Yes, there, there was. There was horrific treatment of the people we arrested wrongly and rightly abroad. I don't think like the the treatment of M- Muslims in America was not it wasn't like ideal, 
but there was no there was there was no significant anti-muslim hate crimes there's not a like a there's not a like a racist anti-muslim party of any sort or or political movement you can make hay being anti-immigrant but that's really an economic argument directed at mexicans and central americans well, there is there is not that there's other than the that. new york mosque being built <laughs> near 911 that's the only thing i can think of that was for a moment a and the relatively small beer compared to what you might have imagined after 9-11. I think there was a lot of just like low level insulting and of and discriminating against and rounding up of Muslim Americans post wow, 9-11 that who is are like a totally smaller and they're a tiny fraction. We have 1% Muslims in this country compared to 8% for France. But in terms of Assange, I mean, there was uh, no doubt there was overreach. But I guess what David and I think I sort of agree with him is saying is it wasn't. By the standards of us overreaching as a as a culture, we didn't overreach in the way you could have imagined. You know, well, one thing that I'm not sure I'm going to see this to you guys, but one thing that's interesting is our real overreach was abroad. And the French don't have our military capability of overreaching abroad. They can only reach. Well, they are. They are fighting. No, they're fighting in the Sahel. They're trying to go after. Islamists in in Mali and uh, Mauritania and a couple of those countries. Yeah, but in they're Sahara. not. I mean, right? Yes, but they're not America. They don't have the unparalleled military force we have, and so I wonder if that will mean that what they do at home is more of an overreaction than us. I, I don't know. I, I was gonna. There's a heartening um, anecdote I read from Australia after the hostage taking there that yeah. there was fear that Muslims were going to be afraid to walk around, and then. White or I guess any other not any un-Muslim Australians like a campaign to walk with Muslims to make sure that they felt safe going to work and going to and fro. Yeah, that was. Well, uh, that was to, I, can I make a point? Sorry, you I may, just want to make, make yes. a point about America and why it's different. I'm not actually going to engage in a lot of back padding for the United States for what I perceive to be a non for its non overreaction after 9/11. It's that we have a different. The Muslims who live in the United States exist in a different state than the Muslims who live in in England and France and Germany, and that those countries have very distinct Muslim communities, strong, non they're not native speakers of languages or they're still speaking they're Arabic not or Turkish. In the they're same not way. integrated or, or you know, Urdu in in Britain. And therefore they they form these these ghetto is the wrong term, but like they're distinct, insular? isolated, insular communities which feel like much more of a threat and are much more mysterious to the dominant culture. And also much more can breed discontent because people are much less integrated into the greater society. They don't – they are at once French but not French. But I think that American Muslims tend – they live much more diffusely. There are very few heavily Muslim communities in the United States. Those that are – you know, they're they're, they're economically relatively prosperous. They're – they don't have the same demographic profile at all in the U.S. I think that's true. One measure of that is that in the fears about Muslims – from the West going to join ISIS in Syria or Iraq. That is a small problem in the United States, a real problem, but it's a bigger problem in the European countries where they're really seeing hundreds of um, young men and some women going over. Although, as we were all talking about this, I was reminded of that episode in Serial where they talk about the Pakistani community feeling watched after 9-11. And so obviously, but the difference is... They were, and they definitely were. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, they definitely Um, were. I have a good friend who's Pakistani, and she feels watched a lot, just walking around. Now, can I ask you guys whether you thought it was an interesting, profitable, or stupid debate? 
that it's consistent to think it's okay to basically have total free speech, but that did not prohibit you from then also voicing an opinion about whether the whether some judgment should be exercised in the expression of your free speech. I thought Ross Douth, a friend of the show, had uh, a beautifully written piece about kind of where the lines are drawn. And then his ultimate argument was it it is precisely in the case where somebody's telling you they're going to kill you for what you say that you must support what is being said because that's the most regardless of what they're saying because that's the most sort of awful awful thing anyway anybody we should link to it go right read it yeah no i i thought i agree with you john i thought ross's piece was tremendous because it did point out the distinction between like your run-of-the-mill i'm gonna be an asshole and you know do some piece of art art or performance art which is going to insult you just for the sake of it and separates that from the the kind of provocations which are done to stand up for liberty at a time when with the people genuinely threaten it. People are genuinely threatening to, to, to squash it, to extinguish it by murder, by punishment, by prison. And the, the people who blaspheme in those moments, should, we should strongly support. And the people who blaspheme, you know, the, the people who are just doing it for sport in the United States just to piss people off, like they don't deserve as much uh, admiration because they're How just – How do you no know stakes. before the fact which is which though? Like now it's really clear that Charlie Hebdo is in the second category. Before yesterday, was it as clear? You don't necessarily know. Well, no, it was as clear before yesterday. They'd been firebombed in 2011. They'd Mm -hmm. been, you know, there'd been, they'd had a police, there was a police guard on the, on um, Sharb, whoever you say. So then if we really take this argument to its logical extreme, doesn't it then become the responsibility of everybody, the whole free press to start I don't know, publishing those cartoons of Mohammed. Like it can't just be that the one satirical small newspaper that does that and gets firebombed then has a responsibility to continue. There's like something a little bit off about this and I can't really figure out what it is. Well – Like what do you think about CNN blurring all the images of the covers? Cowardice. In its coverage. That was ridiculous for them not to do it. I'm not saying that it, that every publication, every minute has to become an, a, a site of, you know, profit photographs and profit satirical cartoons. But certainly, like, if you're covering the scandal, you should at least be brave enough to say, this is what it's about and we're going to show these and we're, we're not going to be cowed by these, by these thugs. And that when, when occasion warrants, we will, we will be brave about it. When we believe the thing that we're writing about has news value or it has value as humor or value as uh, commentary, then we're going to blaspheme the hell out of everything. So, yes. Yeah. I, I had that feeling about it, too. And then I got back to my confusion of the, like, beforehand, after, afterward. Because the way to really make it safe to publish blasphemous comics about any religion is to make it super mainstream so that everybody's doing it and then there's no point in attacking any one organ all right last strain unless john wants to say well i was just gonna i was gonna say i read something late last night that um i don't know if it's true but it was sort of interesting and also kind of just like pulled felt like it pulled all the sweater threads but as arthur goldhammer who's a translator who's um uh, translated lots of works from french wrote in al jazeera that sort of saying people are slightly misunderstanding Charlie Hebdo and that its role was to kind of blaspheme everything and that to sacralize uh, the magazine and its editor in the wake of this and make it a symbol of free speech would actually be just the kind of thing that the magazine would undermine and satirize itself. 
And so that to kind of raise this up as a free speech moment is actually misunderstanding what the paper that was, you know, was attacked, was was doing, which which after a while got me into a kind of Alice in Wonderland kind of feeling. But I throw that out there because it... Um, it did feel also like it might also represent a, an understanding of somebody who understands French culture. We're all rushing to this in a certain way that we might not fully understand. So the question I want to close with is, is we seem to have within the Islamist world this murderous ideology. It's a, it's a murderous ideology against civilization, against modernity, against equality, against democracy, against women – and it has to be overcome. It needs to be defeated. It's like a terrible, terrible thing. It's, it's poisoning the world. When you think back at murderous ideologies of the past, some of religious or not, like you can think of the Inquisition, you can think of the Nazis, you can think of uh, Soviet communism, Chinese communism. These ultimately perished and most, you know, Chinese communism, I suppose, is still on its way out. But they perished because of in the case of Nazism, of a war, total war engaged against. In the case of the Inquisition, you had modernity came along and and the economic prosperity of modernity came along. In the case of the Soviet Union, something similar, which was like it couldn't maintain its economic integrity. How how does this particular pernicious theology get rooted out? Especially when you have in, I think, in Saudi Arabia, most specifically, like a home base for, like a prosperous home base for this ideology to take root. How do we get rid of it? I got uh, listeners, Facebook.com no. slash GabFest <laughs> and answer that question. Um, right. I mean, I think one answer is that we try to support Muslims in particular who are denouncing this strain of Islam and trying to stand against it and make it really clear that we see them there and you know applaud their bravery when they do that. The National Review published an interesting speech by the um, – head of Egypt in which he had recently called out some clerics on exactly these grounds and it did look pretty impressive. There's something to what you say, Emily, but I also think that it, it, it's not enough to simply just denounce the bad people and uphold the good people, that you have to build institutions and build successful economies and places where people feel they can be part of something bigger, they can have a path to prosperity, they have a, you know communities that they can join which aren't based purely on religion but are based on other forms of shared interest or shared economic interest. And, and that seems to me, like the civil society elements in a lot of Islamic countries seem to me to be what is profoundly missing. And those are hard to build. It's hard to just will those into existence. Do you think there is a um, profit in and it's a kind of everybody has to admit this fact necessary to then come to the solution you're trying to find, David, that the connection here is between Islam and the violence. So Nick Kristoff, the minute this happened, wrote a piece saying, let's not talk about the connection because there isn't one. And George Packer in The New Yorker wrote a piece that a basically said, piece. yeah, a piece that was je- right, a much better piece. Right. Um, a religion and- is not just a set of texts, but the living beliefs and practices of its adherents. Islam today includes a su- substantial minority of believers who countenance they don't actually carry out a degree of violence in the application of their convictions that is currently unique. And so that was George Packer. And so 
is that just a fact we can or a discussion we can have and whatever? Or is it a is it one of those things where everybody has to kind of come to a conclusion on this in order for us to proceed? It seems to me, so for example, you could argue you have to recognize that there is a link to the religion here to get to Emily's point, which is that if the people who want to save the religion for all of that is good about it, they are on the hook here because a minority of their religion is ruining their religion. And so they've got to kind of step up in a way that they haven't been before. You can imagine that being kind of something everybody's got to agree on to put pressure on this group that would then come forward and, and lead to the kind of solution you're talking about, David. Or is that just an interesting debate? to have, but really doesn't get to the argument, well, get to the solution you're looking for. I don't think it's a debate that you can ever reach a fruitful conclusion because the, the, the sort of populist right-wing anti-Muslims are, are going to insist that we only reach one conclusion, which is that Islam itself is a poisonous fruit. And that's just, you can't, you know, there are 1.6 billion Muslims. They practice in an endless variety. They live in different places in different ways in different times. And, and like you can't make a categorical conclusion about Islam that will have any, any sort of interest or use. So I, I guess I think that that's a not a it's not a super useful conversation. But on the other hand, weren't you so relieved to read George Packer's formulation of it? Because it seemed like it, unlike the Kristoff formulation, is not willfully blind to the link that there is here between radical right, Islam and the right. violence. And yet it also doesn't overstate it right, to the point right. where you're like in that awful right. motherlord. Right. But I guess territory. I don't think you need to have I guess that, that, that we don't have to to reach a global consensus where Jean-Marie Le, or Marie Le Pen, sorry, not Jean-Marie Le Pen, that was the dad, where Marie Le Pen and and some liberal Muslim theologian in the U.S. reach a, you know, agree this is exactly the state of Islam and violence. Like I just, there ne- there's never going to be that agreement across broad groups. So let's not even, why do we have to have that conversation? Why can't we focus on other things? I don't know. Maybe, you're, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe or maybe we do need mm, to agree I think on it's kind of important to figure out a way to talk about it that's real that's real okay but not overstating it so that you can figure like in order to die to know what the solutions are you have to diagnose the internal as well as the external factors that are contributing the GAFS is sponsored this week by stamps.com one great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business there is an easy way to do that with stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. You can use what you already have, computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then your mail carrier picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST to get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. John Boehner, the House Speaker, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, reign supreme in Washington this week. They were installed at the head of their respective uh, houses in the American legislature. Boehner was reelected to the speakership with some opposition. McConnell cruised to his uh, election. <laughs> They're getting geared up for action. That means John Dickerson comes to life. The animatronic John Dickerson we've been using for months. We've retired. We've brought real John Dickerson back. John Dickerson, what is going to happen in Congress? How many laws 
are we going to have? Are there going to be any laws well, that are passed? That's a great well, laws it's a, that are signed. Signed, yes. Me. Well, you see, you right there yeah. once again. You have driven by bullet train to the heart of the matter. Um, there will be more legislation passed out of Congress than in the last one. That's like Woo! saying, you know, Clear yeah, that that's bar. a that's a very low bar that you could easily trip over. The Republicans are anxious to show that as a party they can govern, which means that the House and the Senate will pass bills and then we will get the president vetoing them. There's so much going on here that's so fascinating and interesting. One crucial thing to watch is how the House and the Senate operate together. We know that the House has more uh, conservative members. It is easier for the Republicans to run it. There are now 13 more Republicans than there were during the last session, which means John Boehner has a little more room to move. So John Boehner can pass more conservative bills and particularly with respect to the budget. This is a key thing to watch in terms of savings that they're going to get in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Now, those bills will then go over to the Senate where Republicans in the Senate have a majority. They have 54 seats. But a lot of those senators are less conservative than the firebrands in the House. And 26 of the 34 seats up in 2016 are Republican seats. Nine of them are in states that Barack Obama won. Uh, So there are a lot of Republican senators who are in states where they need to kind of moderate their business. So a bill coming over from the House that's full of conservative stuff is going to be something they're going to be a little less excited about passing. So that will make House and Senate Republican interaction complex and complicated. But Republicans, if they can get over that hurdle, they want to get stuff to the president, and the president's going to veto it. Before we get to the vetoes, yeah. what are the filibuster rules these days? Can Is McConnell going to push through things and just ditch the filibuster, or is it not worth it for him? Because these are never, never going to become laws anyway, so well, why, why bother to It's a good question. The I, so the, one of the interesting rules on the filibuster to look at is the filibuster rules that Harry Reid changed when, when he was in control of the, and the Democrats were in control of the Senate. McConnell had said that he was going to undo those for appointments, that you would go back to needing a uh, filibuster-proof majority to pass through appointments. I think that's gotten fuzzier, and uh, I I think it's now less clear that um, McConnell's going to go back to the old way. In other words, that now that the Republicans are in power, they're going to benefit from the same thing that that they once denounced. But that's just for appointments. On the big stuff... You'll still have to they'll still have to get 60. So he's going to need moderate Democrats in the Senate. Now, the question is, can anything that passes with the support of moderate Democrats in the Senate be appealing to the majority of the majority in the House since those bills will have to be reconciled? And that's a challenge for John Boehner um, because he's authority. Anyone? Pardon you? Corporate tax reform. Well, corporate tax reform is a big problem because you a lot of people, they want to please by doing tax reform file as individuals. So corporate tax reform is a is is helpful, but they kind of need to do the business, the personal piece too at the same time. Or Republicans think that anyway. So it gets and that gets real complicated real fast. But the filibuster rules are essentially still the same on the budget stuff. They will be able to um, pass a, a budget through reconciliation with just fifty votes. But then the individual, uh, well, sorry. Budgets don't need to go to the president, but the individual appropriations bills do, and that's so you might see individual fights on the thirteen different appropriations bills um, as they go to the president. The president doesn't sign budget. No, the, he doesn't have to. But because the budget doesn't the, mean that's anything. A, that's oh, that's just a yeah, symbolic. It's, it's the symbolic document that then gets worked out in the appropriations bills, and then he can veto the appropriations bills. The way the system is supposed to work is he's supposed to veto stuff, and then it goes back, and it works out. But in our 
current public moment where everything is a total outrage and unprecedented contravention of all that is holy and sacred, there's going to be a lot of like freaking out. For example, this week, the Republicans are pushing through their Keystone Pipeline bill, and the president said he would veto it. Also the same with the 40-hour work week requirement as a part of the Affordable Care Act. The White House said the president would veto that too. That's the way it's supposed to work. Like, that's good. That's great. Has he vetoed anything? He's vetoed like two little things. Little things. Um, And what we should like, what we should want, I think, is Republicans firing up lots of legislation, getting both houses to agree. Like they have to put it all down on paper and hit send, right? It has to – the sentences have to make sense. They have to actually score by the Congressional Budget Office. They have to figure it out in a way that's adult enough to get out of the Congress. And then the president can be an adult and veto it. Like everybody has to step up and do – the minimum requirement of their jobs for the last couple of years, nobody's had to do anything. Republicans haven't. What is been... the great advantage of meeting this minimum requirement that oh, sharpens the debate for the next election? It sharpens the debate for the next election, or it sharpens the debate in the current moment. And maybe, although God, in the current state of public conversation, it seems almost impossible. But maybe once you've sharpened the conversation down to. I mean, the problem with our conversation now in the public is we don't have agreed upon facts. So we, I don't know if even if we get to a further stage in the engagement where things should be clearer, we nevertheless get people to agree on a certain set of facts. But my hope is that in the clarity of the arguments, you would then have a like – People would maybe rise or fall on the strength of their arguments. I realize that's David's looking at me like I'm I know, crazy. That sounds. Um, like but la la but land. here's the reason. Here's the reason I think there's a, that that matters a little bit is Republicans they need to show that they can get stuff done. And so if the debate gets to a certain point and then just breaks down, that's politically bad for them. It, um, so I think there's some political. Are there pressure. things that actually have to get passed, or are we do we have a debt ceiling or a? government shutdown looming in may or in may or well the yeah two things one in may or june the debt ceiling fight will come up again and that'll be a huge internal battle within the republican party where you have at least one you have a lot of people running for for either president or higher office based on fights they want to get into with either obama or the establishment in the republican party and the debt ceiling fight will be full of of attacks and and counterattacks and and anger from those republicans who don't you know, who want to make a name for themselves and and also who believe in principle that, that the debt should not be allowed, you know, should not go up. Then there will be debates as a part of the, just the normal budgeting structure. And Republicans have promised to go back to regular order, which is passing budgets, then passing appropriations bills, doing it, having amendments on bills, which Harry Reid didn't used to allow, and having a like a system that works. That's going to be really tough. If it happens, then you'll get actual public debate. A, a lot of what we've missed is... Um, there hasn't been debate. Everybody's been walking around in this wraith-like stature where they're at war, but they're not fully engaged in the war because issues aren't debated. So my hope is that at least there's going to be more to actually watch and comment on. And hopefully, if that's the case, then you know people will feel embarrassed by the things they say in public or have to account for the things they say in public. And that might force them into different kinds of actions than the stuff we've seen for the last few years. Gee, I can't wait. This sounds really good. Well, remember, I'm just hoping for something better than we've had in the past, which is, you know, when you've been eating a sandwich full of, like, old tires, then a sandwich full of cardboard is, you know, marginally better. Okay. Let's have it. Sandwich full of cardboard. Here we come. Emily, one of the other themes in this kind of uh, next two years is, oh, the Republicans are not going to be able to get any laws passed, but they're going to win lots of things in the courts. They're going to try to win lots of things in the courts. Do you think that that's realistic? And what are the what are the big places where they could 
score points? I think the challenges to Obama's executive authority on immigration, et cetera, et cetera, not going anywhere, probably, at least not going far. The Obamacare challenge in the Supreme Court, which will be argued in the beginning of March, is like genuinely worrisome for the administration because there's no other way to understand why the court agreed to review this case in the first place. If all they were going to do was affirm that this problem in Obamacare and the way it's drafted, which affects whether the federal government can run exchanges for the states – if all they were going to do was say like A-OK and just give it a nice stamp, there was no reason for them to take this case. So that means that at least four justices who agreed to review it probably think there's a problem with it. And whether they are kind of gambling on getting the vote of John Roberts, who, of course, saved Obama famously the first time around or just playing to embarrass him. I mean, I, those are like the two most obvious scenarios. I have yet to have anyone paint a kind of rosier picture for me. So that's the case that I see as the most problematic for the administration. John, there was much made this week of the idea that, oh, Boehner, there was a – it wasn't a real challenge to Boehner. But there were a few people who voted against him in the race for speaker. Is the House Republican caucus going to be super fractious and does it matter? I don't – think so. I mean, what, what we saw was, I think it was 25 Republicans did not vote for Boehner. The, the key point being that they didn't really coalesce around anyone else. And so it's no surprise. One of the papers wrote that this was an embarrassment for Boehner. I don't know. I mean, it's not a surprise that there are a group of conservatives who don't like the establishment in the Republican Party. And so they you know, are trying to take it out on John Boehner. It's also no surprise that if you are a person whose um, money and support comes from the grassroots of the party, that you are acting totally in your self-interest by doing this. So, like, I don't think we should be surprised at all that this happened. What will be interesting from a lawmaking perspective is how Boehner works with McConnell, recognizing the the difficulties. Because if Boehner passes some real bristling conservative wonder piece of legislation out of the house it's a it's a problem for mcconnell i think because then mcconnell's got to like maybe get the i mean it's not a problem he's just got reelected he's got six years he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve but but the dance between the two of them will be interesting to watch i think we recognize it's a common thing that there's like a group of republicans that you know banners people call them the hell no caucus they will be there this fight will happen within that party. I guess my point is I don't think it's any worse than it ever was. Arguably, Boehner's got 13 new Republicans, 12 of them. David Brad of Virginia, who beat Eric Cantor, is the only one who's a troublemaker. He's got 13 more votes now of people who are likely to you know, play ball with him. So his life is actually better than it was. But I, I think we're going to see lots of uh, debate on the, uh, on the Republican side. And we're going to see lots of wonderful Great debate on the Democratic side. Uh, Elizabeth Warren gave a speech uh, to the AFL-CIO, I believe it was, on Wednesday, uh, in which she made four, some thinly veiled, some not veiled at all, some, you know, buck naked and shaking in the wind attacks on the um, on the Clinton years. And so whether she runs for president or not doesn't matter. But that conversation is going to take place, which will be great because it will be like a pointed conversation about, you know, actual ideas and what things might affect people's lives. And so that'll be happening on the left as well. I feel like John had a really good ski trip full of like punch and Mexican jumping. Beans. All John wants is conversation. John is really I know. Having, exactly. <laughs> let's just have a conversation. <laughs> just debate the issues, please. 
So we have an, a uh, new sponsor. Who's an old sponsor? Our friends at Audible are back. Audible.com is, of course, leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. You can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want to. And you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest. And over the years, we've had so much fun picking books that we think people should listen to on Audible, books that we've listened to, books that you, our listeners, are listening to. In fact, if you have a suggestion, email us at gabfest at slate.com with some book that you're listening to on Audible that you think is particularly good. I was going to make a suggestion, if you guys don't have any, since this is... um, I've, we ceded the floor to you. You had okay. a great idea. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've been reading over vacation. I've been reading Vanity Fair, which I uh, – the William Thackeray novel, 1840s Don't tell me novel. you've never read that book. No, That's I, impossible. No, I read it, I read it you know, as okay. a teenager. Phew. But I hadn't read it until 12 years – 14 years ago. I didn't read yeah. it in school. Oh, me too. But David's read all of those things. <laughs> David's read everything. No, so I read it. No, I read way it way ahead always on 18th and 19th 20, century literature. 25 years ago totally I read it. Wins. And I've just – I came back to it. It is – Fantastic, and it's fantastic in a way that I think would make it a superb audiobook. Which is that it's it's really funny. It has lots of great, different, distinct voices, and it has this kind of very mordant narrator, this very kind of ironical narrative narrative voice on top of it. And then Becky Sharp is, in <laughs> particular, such a incredibly vivid, particular modern character. So it's no surprise there are like five or six different versions of it at Audible. I do not know which one is best. Uh, they, they range in length from 28 to 32 hours. So if you, if you have a 32-hour ride, maybe pick the 32-hour one. I would recommend that. Did you listen to this with your children in the back car? No, I've been reading it. I haven't oh, been listening oh, to it. I'm oh, saying like oh, I right, would bet okay. it's a great listen, oh, okay. but I have not been. No, I don't think my kids would tolerate it. Ours used to tolerate and now they don't. They have. We listened to uh, something fresh at P.G. Woodhouse. Um, and Simon's reading P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah, they will read it but they, for audiobooks, Not they have to have their own. My daughter has Sherlock Holmes audiobook on constantly. Like while she's reading other books, she's listening <laughs> to the Sherlock Holmes. It's the background? It is the entire, no, it's like seriously, at the, she would play it at the dinner table if uh, if she could. It's huh. It's uh. Yeah. I was reading aloud from Wuthering Heights to my ninth graders the other night, and he was just so filled with derision. It was a little dismay. Wuthering Heights. Well, actually, I actually haven't mm. read it in a while, but I, mm. I, I. It's a little bit much. It's so overwrought. Yeah. Oh, completely. I was actually really questioning why it was still why it was great part literature. of the yeah. high school canon. Is it? I don't know. Yeah. At, at my son's school, Eli's school, it is. Oh, is it? I didn't oh, okay. read it. It's in class. It's, uh, it's Vanity sofa. Fair. Vanity Fair feels super, super, super current. Yeah. It feels very eminently with today. Anyway, go to audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Welcome back, Audible. The conflict between the New York Police Department and Mayor Bill de Blasio has taken a strange turn after – the murder of two officers prompted an outpouring of grief and rage among New York cops and New Yorkers in general, and particular anger at the mayor, who is viewed by some cops as having supported protesters who are protesting the Garner and Brown decisions, grand jury decisions, is that de Blasio is supporting protesters over the police and also felt to have impugned the police by warning his biracial son to be careful around cops. So there's been this tremendous decline in the number of arrests and citations in New York City over the past couple of weeks. 
in some cases, declines of more than 90 percent over last year's uh, number of arrests and citations. Should the cops, John, feel dissed by the way Bill de Blasio has has spoken to them, spoken of them, spoken of his son? Or are they are they being too sensitive? I don't I'm know. I'm not bailing you out. I know. No, no, no. I think, I mean, so the what struck me was what he said about his son is a truth. I, you hear it all the time uh, from... African-Americans who describe having that conversation with their parents or just who describe having that conversation with their kids or about Emily, the police. Emily Bazelon or Emily having, Bazelon having, having that conversation, that conversation with, with you. Yeah, you know, with their kids. Yeah. do get mad. Let me so, just tell you. So that is a true fact. So if as a mayor who's got to I think about this in the context of President Obama, right? He has many roles to play. He is riding not just two horses, one foot on each, but like, you know, he's an octopus on eight different horses. When you're in possession of a fact and can deliver a true fact from that position of power, do you have an obligation to deliver that true fact because you can deliver it and spread that truth even further? Or because you have these other responsibilities, do you have to, wait for it, restrain yourself and recognize, look, when I say this, it's going to plow through and have lots of power and it's going to maybe speak to one constituency over here, but it's also going to bruise, damage this other big one over here. So while on the one hand, I think that him speaking that truth is important. On the other hand, I think like you knew the damage he was doing and was going to do in this huge constituency that's quite important to him. That's the thing that I focused on, which allows me to sort of cop out from the fact that he ran a campaign against racial profiling and all of that, which I think is fine for him to have done. Emily, do you do you think it was wrong for the New York cops who were at the funerals of the two murdered officers to turn their backs on de Blasio? Do you think that is... No, I actually thought that was a completely legitimate form of protest. And I was a little... I, on their behalf, I didn't think all the slamming of them for politicizing a funeral and uh, the word inappropriate kept getting used which is always a sign to me that the, right there's nothing wrong like, w- <laughs> right because if all you can say is that something's inappropriate it means that you can't come up with anything more specific and sharp so i thought they had a perfect right to do that the work stoppage is more problematic however what i find so interesting about the work stoppage is that they're conducting a natural experiment into whether broken windows policing really does make the city safer <laughs> right. if they can stop you know more than 90% of the minor arrests and citations and the city shows absolutely no effect well what does that say about all these people who are getting a criminal history by getting all those arrests and minor citation maybe this is silly because if they do it for a few weeks it's meaningless people you know assume that it's going to come back they don't change their behavior but if it went on for an extended period and new york was unaffected by it in terms of crime rates that would be like such great fodder for social scientists and would confirm a theory of mine, which is that broken windows is exaggerated in its impact. It is a, it is a fascinating question. Do you, what do you think? Is that your suspicion? My sus- strong suspicion is that there would be adjustment to it and that when people saw that certain forms of disorder, you were allowed to get away with it, people who are tend toward those disorder would begin to practice that and would there would be more of it and there would there would be this creeping sense of the city is somewhat more chaotic and then gradually a little bit less safety and that things would – crime rates would go up as a result. I don't think that broken windows policing is responsible for you know the, every bit of the tremendous 
huge, enormous drop in crime in New York and other places. But I, I also am not of the this has nothing to do with it. Right. I guess the nothing to do with it position is pretty hard to defend. What if, however, there was only a slight uptick in minor crime, but a lot of people who would have been saddled with arrest histories were not and therefore were employable and, you know, became better citizens, right? I mean, that's the probably in the margins, the trade-off that we're talking about. Right, right. What seems problematic here is that after the murder, when George Pataki, the former three-term governor of New York, said... De Blasio and Eric Holder have blood on their hands because of this. He didn't use the term blood on their hands, but this was the natural outgrowth of what they had said. Felt to me as unhelpful and wrong as when people said Sarah Palin had something to answer for after the shootings in Tucson. I think that kind of linkage that fast requires somebody on the kind of cop side to say, wait a minute, this was a deranged cretin and we can have this other debate, but let's not immediately emotionalize it with this. Or maybe not. Maybe you think the opposite. Maybe you think, no, you have to speak that truth right away. Well, I mean, he was a deranged Cretan, but he was a deranged Cretan who had made a decision based on based on certain things that happened and that's that but but the question doesn't is doesn't mean like, that de blasio or the protesters have bear any culpability but well that's what that's the point i mean pataki said they did so i don't know that's what i'm trying to the, sort through this gets to a kind of a an issue which has been come up a lot over the military now which is that there is this cultural divide that exists between the us military and people who people have military connections and non-military connections and I think it's growing with cops, too, that the, that the cop culture is – particularly in big cities, which are very liberal, which are socially liberal, the relative conservatism of cop culture and the this insularity of it is alarming, especially because the, it has gone hand in hand with this idea of – Particularly in the case of the military, oh, we have to trust what the military wants. We overvalue what it is that people in the military say and want. And we've we've seeded a little bit this idea that civilian control is critical to to any sort of form of policing or military activity. And I, I'm worried about these cultures, these isolated cultures developing. This is This is what happens in fascist countries. Well, I think that's a good thing to worry about. It goes both ways, though, right? I mean, to support... I think what you're saying, it's a problem that so many cops don't live in the cities that they police. That's a truth. Generally, they tend to live in more suburban communities. It's a different world. On the other hand, I think the fact that – and I am one of these people – but if you kind of assume ill of the police and don't give them the benefit of the doubt and don't bother to understand their culture, then aren't – doesn't it go both ways there? Isn't that cultural alienation something we should have some responsibility yeah, okay, for? But, but you know what? C- cops are public servants, but you know who else is a public servant? You know, garbage men are public servants. Teachers are public servants. People who work in the DMV are public servants. And we don't spend a ton of time worrying about the social alienation of the other groups. And I just – I feel like there's this overvaluing of like, oh, the what the job does – the police do or the job the military do is so qualitatively different than other forms of service to, to country and society. And being a cop is a slightly more dangerous job than being a teacher. But it's not actually – that wildly much more dangerous. Did you see actually Radley Balco had a really interesting, to me, surprising post about this, that it 
first of all, 2013 was like the safest year in many years to be a cop. There were the, the death rate is lower. A lot of I mean, this is there, so his conclusion was that it is slightly safer to live in a big city, just generally speaking, than to be a policeman. Or maybe I have that. No, slightly safer to be a policeman than to live in a big city. Yes, sorry. Exactly. And it just made me realize that I have assumed that I always think of being a cop as super, super dangerous and scary and that actually I was like over over considering that. Well, it may be scary to be a cop even though – I mean there's plenty of reason to be worried even if you don't actually die. Well, sure. true, but the yeah. idea that you're really facing life and death situations. Right. You mean from fact, a, I, I yeah, was, but like long haul truckers, right, it's right. like really dangerous. Like people who cut down trees. It's really like lots of people work in dangerous professions. Right, right. I was, I was sorry. I was unclear at the beginning there. I, I was looking at it not from a policy standpoint, but from a like a long haul trucker. It doesn't live with the daily fear of peril in the way I would imagine a cop would. But I'm, that's not important Seriously? to the public. Po- I think the important. scariest thing is driving. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah but that's because. I don't know, John. I mean, I, just, I guess I just think like, and I and I think uh, people but, like you, John, are major contributors uh, to I this idea. Like about this is more, more true of cops in the military because clearly the military is. I, I, I'm going to bracket that. But being a cop, it's a wonderful service. You are helping society. You're doing great work for us. You are you're protecting us against crime. You're creating order. There are public servants of all kinds, and I just don't think that this idea that cops exist in a totally separate category is a healthy idea and that their work is nobler or tougher or, you know, different than other, you know, they are paid to do jobs, which, which are jobs the way that lots of us are paid to do jobs. I think when your job requires you, and this would be true of anybody like a firefighter or when a, when a job requires you for your duty, because of the pledge you have made to put yourself in a situation where you could die and widow your children and your widow your wife and and orphan your children. I think the choice that you have to make every day to do that, even though you go around the corner and it's you know it doesn't happen. I think actively having to make that choice every day is a. I think that's of a different order than the incredibly noble things people do in their jobs that are that that where death isn't the isn't always or potentially around the corner. I, but I, maybe okay if it's a different order. I maybe it's so. But one, the stats that Emily cited. Interesting stat. Two, it's not of such a massively categorical different order. Like it's of a slight yeah, – it's a slightly different order. Anyway. Right. I'm, it doesn't mean that we don't criticize in the oh, end. Oh, but right? no. I mean, but that's surely the problem I with what Pataki that. said. It suggested yeah. that if you criticize yeah. the police, well, of course. then you're responsible when they got get shot. And well, that, right. yeah, but I can't defend that because I didn't say it. Right, right. <laughs> but I mean to me this goes back to the point about de Blasio telling his biracial son that he's at risk from the police. He is. And so I hear you about restraint given de Blasio's position. On the other hand, it was like refreshing to hear someone in power just say that. You know, I'm sure at least there are some cops who thought like, right, that's a problem. We need to work on that. The PBS mega hit Downton Abbey returned for its fifth season this week. And our colleagues at Slate Plus are producing a week by week companion spoiler special podcast with two favorite hosts, June Thomas, Seth Stevenson. The spoiler podcast will be available the moment each Downton episode ends at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sunday night. So you can hear instantly what Seth and June think about Lady Mary's latest suitor. And Thomas's latest skullduggery. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can test drive that early access for the first three Downton episodes in the spoiler special feed or the Slate Daily Podcast feed. Check it out. And if you like it, subscribe to Slate Plus at slate.com slash gabfestplus. 
All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. Cocktail chatter when you're not being arrested, when Emily is not being ticketed this week by <laughs> New York cops. We're going to have a really special, this is a special chatter day. It's a special chatter because our intern, Max Tawney, who's been a fantastic intern. We just, love Max. Just so great. Um, it's his last day. Uh, he's heading off for a new job at Huffington Post. We have a new intern, Tarek Barrett who is here. We have both of you here at once. Watch and learn, Tarek, from Max. But Max, can you join us and and give us a cocktail chatter, a farewell cocktail chatter? Okay, cool. So my chatter this week is about a really interesting, strange, no-budget documentary that I recently saw that's screening in Washington this week around a few different theaters. Uh, It's by the director of a cult famous documentary called Heavy Metal Parking Uh, Lot. Uh, You know this? Oh, okay. The uh, the documentary is called Led Zeppelin Played Here, and it's about this strange tale of... They're making uh, the hosts are gesturing like they know what I'm going to say already. So maybe a friend of mine is in it. Wait, really? Uh, Okay, so it's about the strange tale of of this mysterious Led Zeppelin gig that may or may not have happened at the Wheaton Youth Center, which is exactly what it sounds like. A Wheaton is a suburb of uh, Washington D.C. Supposedly, this Led Zeppelin gig on their very first tour when they were still called the New Yardbirds or still being sold as the New Yardbirds. Uh, Supposedly, they played in front of 50 people, but there's no photograph evidence. There are no tickets. There were no posters because the person who was promoting the gig was a radio DJ. But there are about like a handful of people who swear by this gig happening. And so this guy went and made like a five-year documentary, has spent like the last five years making a documentary about whether, investigating whether or not this did happen. Uh, And it's fascinating in looking at, you know, uh, the ways in which people obsess over Led Zeppelin. But I think it's also really interesting because it looks at kind of the birth of the uh, modern rock and roll uh, bar complex in uh, the ways that bands kind of in the early 70s when this was supposedly happened there wasn't really the same kind of structure for up and coming bands so bands played at all these kind of really strange bizarre venues the documentary talks about James Brown playing in like a sold out show in a high school cafeteria Um, you know it talks about Iggy Pop playing at the Wheaton Youth Center The Doors playing at a Fairfax roller rink Alice Cooper playing at a community college on top of tables stacked together so it was a really really weird time for rock and roll and so if you get the uh, opportunity to uh, to see this documentary if you're in DC you should definitely check it out um, it's kind of this weird no budget thing so it's a little little choppy here and there but it's just totally fascinating and really funny so my former colleague Dave Nuttycomb is in it what who is, is he and he has a role he helped produce it with, Wait, with could, you print, could you really? pronounce could you pronounce his name again Dave Nuttycomb that's a great last name. what does he name. do wait what does he do on the film what does he what is he talking about on the film do you remember um I don't you know I don't remember but he and I talked about it I think he did a lot of the interviews with it, or maybe he was somebody who could have been at the show. Yeah. Well, what year was the show? 1969. Supposedly it happened at... on the night of Richard Nixon's inauguration, yeah, which is like was... another really funny kind of uh, yeah. uh, turn of events, I guess. Max, have you seen Anvil, the documentary Anvil? No, I haven't. What oh. is that? My favorite documentary. Oh my Please God. go see that. What is it's it? about an aging rock band, or actually like heavy metal band, right, in right. Um, Canada. There are Canadian Jews, no less. It's really, really It's really awesome. great. That sounds that sounds really funny and like absolutely up my alley too. Max, thank you. That was great chatter, and um, it's been great having you. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. Stay, thanks for having stay me. Stay in Gabfest touch, Emily. What's your chatter? Well, I was just gonna. Uh remind everyone about the existence of the Supreme Court. You already did earlier, but in case everyone was wondering what the court was up to, 
there are a few things coming up. It's possible that as early as next week, the Supreme Court might actually take a gay marriage case. There are there's a challenge from the Sixth Circuit where that appeals court actually ruled against same sex marriage. It's the first a federal appeals court to do so, and maybe that will be. The little impetus that the court needs um, that would make the term more interesting. Whatever happens with that one way or the other, toward the end of the month, there is a Fair Housing Act case that's about the legal standard for winning a claim of discrimination under the Fair Housing Act. It actually has like huge repercussions because it's it's about what's called disparate impact theory, which is essentially the idea that statistics alone can play a major role in determining whether something has a, a, racial, a racially biased impact, a government policy or how, you know, a landlord's policy or lenders. And that's been a really important tool that the federal government has used to fight discrimination in the Supreme Court's conservatives seemed like they're just waiting to take it down. So I think that the date for that one is January 21st. Maybe we'll talk about it again. John Dickerson. Emily's uh, chatter was much worse than um, Max's. Yes, well. Well, and I'm not going to. Max. That's right. I'm not going to try and compete with Max either. It's uh, it's his day, his moment to shine in the sun. But I am going to call out to our uh, wonderful listening audience uh, about a piece that I've been working on for uh, arguably since Forever? college. Your yeah. whole life? Well, it feels like it. It was the topic of... Uh, of my uh, thesis my senior year in college. Uh, But it's about the idea of restraint, which I've been thinking and writing about, and have a piece that's going to run in, I guess, the next couple of weeks. It's about personal restraint in our own lives in which we're so overwhelmed and shredded and the ways in which we all try to kind of nail up plywood to keep uh, all of the different interruptions both planned and those that we bring upon ourselves by being obsessed with various different things, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But then there's also, and so the restraint from just modern, that's required in modern life to get back to that kind of peaceful feeling of depth that a lot of us feel when we're either on a plane with no Wi-Fi or when we've read a good book for a long period of time. And the piece is not one of those that says we must turn everything off. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And it argues, I think, that restraint and the idea of finding a way to build boundaries in your own life is the way to find balance between this incredible, wonderful world full of thousands and millions of opportunities and also that feeling of kind of quiet, placid sort of solitude that is required to kind of stay sane. But that's the personal side of it. It also obviously bleeds into the public Um, arguments and debates. And we've talked about this for as long as the show's existed, but we talked about it previously with respect to the the shootings in New York of the two policemen and the idea that our public conversation is kind of completely without restraint these days and that the id not only controls the statements of our public officials, but all of us who participate in these debates through Twitter or Facebook, making it easier for us to say the kind of hottest things on our mind. And because we've sorted ourselves into communities where we no longer live with, with cops or we live only in a community of cops, uh, that we no longer have the day-to-day interactions with each other that give us a sense and a fellow feeling of people who are different from us, but who obviously are common in the sense that they're all part of, of a community or at least the human race. And in a world in which we've sorted ourselves differently, then the, the need for restraint in order to understand somebody else who's not around you all the time seems to me to be even greater. And yet in our public conversation, there's almost no examples of, well, that's not true, but there are, are fewer examples of restraint. And the people we hold up are those who can say the sharpest, kind of most incendiary thing as fast as possible to capture the debate rather than the person who says, wait a minute, perhaps we're moving to 
too hastily here. So that's a, a long wind up as a way to say you can all discuss that at your cocktail parties this weekend to make sure that everybody leaves the house early and doesn't stay late they and hang rest- out in the kitchen and drink or they um, do restrain themselves from talking about it. Yeah. Uh, or you could just write in about whether that long rambling monologue I just gave touches uh, you in some way that might be interesting and help me fill out the corners of the uh, of the piece in a way I had not previously thought since our listeners are so uh, are so wise and have demonstrated themselves to be so over these many years. My chatter is about a story I read in the Oxford American recently about an American version of something called sky burial. So in, in various cultures, you can have your corpse just like laid out and have it picked at by birds and vultures in particular. Uh, Zoroastrian culture is big on this. And in America now, there's a place which as it's an anthropology research center, a forensic anthropology research center, center in Texas. And there may be another one in Tennessee where you can donate your body, your corpse, and then just it gets thrown out in nature and they observe it. They're using it to study how do bodies decay, like what, what happens to them. And some of them, they let the vultures come at you. Some of them, they don't let the vultures get you. But it seems totally great. Like I really – I've always wanted my corpse just to be chucked out there to de- decay and – Why know. not give it to medical students well, to dissect? Yeah, sure. That's fine That's kind of what this is though, right? If it's forensic this or is this, because, like is this a, a police of, thing? No, it just sounds like a sort of trendier yet less useful version of that. Why? Well, we first don't of all, know you know about how useful. bodies decay. I'm happy, What's to, the... I'm happy to have them – look, when medical students go after your body, they cut it up and then you, they still have a body at the end of it. So you'd have to do something with it at the end. So like how do you end up? How do you end up as dust? How do Maybe you end they up? should take those parts and then throw them into your sky burial place. Well, I just – I don't know. I just – I have always felt like that the whole process of – both cremation has always seemed to me like sort of global warming-ish and that, that burial seems like a huge waste of effort, time, like I don't know. Isn't and the, the, the better way is just like th- – Put the body out there. Let animals have it. Let it sink into the ground. Let the bones bones be there, gnawed on by, gnawed on by walruses or whatever wants to gnaw on it. And that would be awesome. That's what I'd like. The one at Tennessee, the the body farm, I think they call it at Tennessee, is the one that Patricia is it Patricia Cornwall who wrote books oh, about this or something. I think that's that, right. I, I think, think you're that's, right. I, that's my UT connection. Um, I thought when you said sky burial, it would be some kind of thing where after you passed away, they'd load you into some huge cannon and just Blow your yeah. just shoot you into the sky, this and then you really would... be called bird pecking out your yeah. eyes. Yeah, bird you're not really your getting. You're not Nobody getting off. Nobody would do it if it was called that. I, I ex- would. I there assume there's a fantastic anecdote in the story of this this family where the mother wants to have it done, and she has it done, but they don't mention. One of the kids doesn't tell the other kids that oh, they're going to let mom be filmed as part of a documentary or something and so then these kids are watching tv and they see their mother's skull which they can identify because because of the like the teeth the the the, the uh, molars on it and the description boy they her, have a real working well, understanding of her dentistry the, no, they say sense. her first no, they say her first name and they describe okay. her and then you can see the the dental work and the kids are so excited like that that how great oh. it would be for their mom and how lovely it is. And but is there kind of like an a la carte menu? In other words, no vultures, but I'm fine with the worms and the ants. Or or do you? I don't think, uh, that I think doesn't you sound do get very to scientific. Make some though. choices like about how you like. Some people want to be laid out in clothing, and I think they'll let you. They'll put you out in clothing. But here's the want. thing: is that if you're going to call it a sky farm, you need more vertical lift. This <laughs> seems to me there's no vertical lift at all. They don't, and I, I want they, they don't call it that. Oh, all right. Oh well, let's start that because that to me seems to be 
if they could if they could just like by trebuchet yeah. or by like catapult what? or or some medieval like weapon that they could load you into and then just like then like the then way you they used to shoot you, cows. Then you just land somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True, <laughs> but they could test the way your body flew through the air. It's like when they would the the, the cows during the Black Death. They would shoot them over the parapet to uh, the the hordes that were advancing to uh, you know stop them. It could be used as weaponry. Fetche la vache. <laughs> oh my uh, god! All right, our our intern one last time is Max Tani. Our new intern is Tarek Barrett. He is a lawyer, so he's finally going to stop Emily from saying all that nonsense she's been saying. <laughs> our producer is Mike Bolo. Joel Myers, our managing producer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Tell us whether you want to be left to be eaten by vultures on that page. Pro or con? Like or not like? Check out our Twitter feed at SlateGabFest and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, that comment and rating really helps us. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.